Welcome to Travel Stories on the Myelinomics Podcast Network. This week, episode 18, where we review our end-of-summer trips. Tom, it's been an interesting summer, a lot of travel. I think we both have probably traveled more than we we would normally travel over a summer, I'd say compared to pre-pandemic times. But this last Labor Day sort of trip, I think you had probably the the more exciting of the trip. For us, it was a, a bunch of new stuff. It was new for me too. I mean, I haven't I haven't been to where I went. <laughs> That's true. So we both had new uh, new experiences. Yep. More travel stories. <laughs> so you want to start out with yours or you want me to start out with mine? Had some interesting experiences with, I think, one of your favorite club lounge uh, networks. I mean, you can go first. I think you're going to start talking about uh, Delta Sky Clubs. And I think they have a well-deserved reputation for being well, some of the nicer domestic lounges in the United States. And, you know, having gotten into that one in uh, JFK, I absolutely think the think the world of them now as compared to like Admirals Clubs and United Clubs and, and even, in fact, Centurion Lodges. I would put the uh, Sky Club at or above a Centurion Lodge. Wow, that's high praise. But I agree with you. You know, when I was doing a lot of flying, for instance, in Seattle, you know, they're, they're right next to each other, right? The Delta Sky Club and the MX Centurion Lounge in Seattle. And I would almost always choose the Sky Club over the Centurion Lounge. And I would just do that just because the Centurion Lounge is usually very, very crowded and it sometimes can be lackluster what's in there where, don't get me wrong, Sky Clubs are crowded too. But in general, I feel like they're probably a little bit less so than at least some of the crazy mad zoo uh, Centurion Lounges. And they usually have on offer something more interesting than chicken thigh. Yeah. And the funny part though, that threw me a bit off was they say welcome in just like the Centurion Lounges, or at least as I recall, they do. Oh, really? I thought that was kind of surprising or, or, or humorous. So diving in just on, on some Sky Club observations, obviously the food spread was wonderful. I didn't realize that you could get in on arrival. And I don't know if this was, had a kid with us, had the Amex cards, or they were just in a really good mood. There was no line so we just, we went up and we said, Hey, can we get in? And, uh, we had just arrived on a regional jet from, from Baltimore and we were overnighting at the Hyatt Regency JFK and they said, yeah, welcome in. And so what do we do first? Of course I go to the bar and ask if we can use some points for a wonderful bottle of Veuve Clicquot Le Grand Dame. As one does. As one does. I don't think I'd pay for a bottle of this caliber in regular course. And I wouldn't regularly do this even with Delta points. It did a comparison actually, of some of the bubbles options. And I found it really interesting because I had thought that it was probably going to be about a penny a point. Mm-hmm. And with a, a little bit of this analysis, it did not end up being that way. So so uh, Le Grand Dame did come out at 1.1 cents per point. So 16.6 thousand uh, sky pesos, uh, sky miles, or uh, according to total wine, $184.99. Now, of course, that's not including any taxes and in Maryland, we get charged 9% tax. So, I mean, it's not an insignificant amount. I'm sure the Virginia folks will, will get taxed even more more heavily in our wonderful state-run monopoly that we have. Probably. But uh, if you look at some of the more reasonably priced bottles, Veuve Clicquot, Brut Rosé, a wonderful option. We had a bottle of that as well, and, and we enjoyed it. But if you do the calculation compared to fifty nine ninety seven or 8,000 points, it's seven-tenths of a penny. Of value. 
So not the best redemption. No, you would think that it would have been a better redemption, but no, the, the, the cheaper the bottle, it's the worse the redemption. So would you say it pays to be bougie at a Sky Club? Well, I think if you're going to be bougie, you might as well be, you're going to get a better value per point, but you're going to burn a whole lot more points doing it. Personally, we got the Brut Rosé as well when we flew out the following day. And I, I find that bottle to be a wonderful bottle, but I don't know that it's worth $60 or I suppose 8,000 points. To round it out, Moet and Chandon, Imperial at 6.6 thousand points, much better, a little bit more palatable, but you can buy that for 43.97, again, seven tenths of a point. So is, is Vouv, Clicquot, Le Grand Dame the, the most expensive that they had? Did they have any like Dom or Cristal or anything like that? I don't recall seeing, I, I definitely didn't see Dom or Cristal. I think Le Grand Dame was the most expensive on the bubbles, but I, in fact, I took a photo of the menu just because I wanted to be able to reference it. And I'm looking here. Yeah, they, they give the price of $249 for Le Grand Dame, which actually isn't that bad. I mean, it's it's not even um, 150% of what you can get at a total wine. But looking at the other options that they had, yeah, Le Grand Dame is, Dame is the most expensive of all the options. Well, you know, as cheap as, as Skype, you know, or I guess as worthless as Skype pesos are, I probably will probably still hoard them rather than, uh, you know, getting a bottle of champagne. Bottle of champagne for myself is a little bit much. Yeah. And, and you know something, I'm finding more and more palatable deals, domestic redemptions every so often on, on, on Delta. So I'm, I'm not hoarding them, but I'm, I'm starting to look to generate more, I'll say. I just yeah. happen to have a bunch because we canceled that flight home from uh, Sao Paulo on Delta. I just figured, you know, why not? Fun little experience. A good area of focus with Delta, you know, is, is also some of the Europe originating or Europe ending kind of flights from either Southeast Asia or Australia. Those seem to be reasonably good redemption. Mind, mind you, still pretty high, like about 90,000 sky miles or so. But I've seen a bunch of options, you know, whether it be Vietnam Air or China Airlines based in Taipei or, you know, a couple of different options from Southeast Asia up to like, let's say, London or Amsterdam or Paris, that might not be horrible ways to, to spend your sky miles. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, anytime you can get into a premium cabin, I think is just a great, great option. And Vietnam Airlines is definitely one of those that I haven't had the chance to fly yet. Definitely on my list. So here we are, we dove right into the Sky Club and I think I buried the the lead in, in where we were going. This is a trip that was long in the making going to Lima. It wasn't originally supposed to be Lima, but we had these Delta credits from, gosh, I think we booked it like two years ago to Mexico City. And uh, they were going to expire pretty soon. We wanted to get this trip in before our daughter became two, which would have required her to have a seat as well. And so we sort of, we crammed this one in just a, a quick three or four night trip, Lima, Peru. Got to fly Latam again, completely different seat compared to what we had done on that guy's trip. I think we talked about in episode eight. This was Sounds like a much more modern product. Yeah, this was a 767-300, so a little bit older aircraft, but it was the Thompson Vantage, which I found to be very, very comfortable. The service was a little bit hit or miss. They didn't uh, provide menus. They had a really limited onboard bar. I'm not even sure they had vodka. And we're only talking about a seven-hour flight, so it's not nothing terribly memorable, nothing, nothing bad about it. Just a, kind of an unremarkable flight to a city that I think I still can't find what was remarkable about the city either. <laughs> <laughs> you 
You know, I, I you said you you were there for three nights, and it's it was probably enough, wasn't it? It was technically four nights, but we left so early the the last uh, morning, like we were out at like four or five a.m. So yeah, no, it was definitely more than more than enough to see the city. Walked a ton. You know, there's some beautiful sights. There's a, a some ruins of a pyramid and what was virtually in the middle of the city. But I couldn't find like the foodie side of of Lima, and I mean, we went in a couple of different places. They had like like happy hour specials. We were just trying to take a break while uh, while we were walking around the city, and we'd sit down and we'd be like, okay, let's order this or that, and two or three different restaurants and bars were out of gin, for example. And I was sort of like, wow, that, that was just really surprising, especially because we happened to wander into a supermarket and they had like just these entire end caps of different flavored gins, uh, uh, blood orange, strawberry, all these, other, all these beautiful different gins. Like I wasn't even thinking gin and tonic until I saw these end caps. And then I walk in, <laughs> then we sit down at a couple of different restaurants and we're like, uh, you got nothing. Hmm. It just seems a little bit odd to me. I mean, did you try the kui? The kui. I don't think I tried the kui. I did have a few chocanos, which which do have pisco in them. Okay. I know you told me to find the chikui. So, so kui, uh, I believe, is the guinea pig hamster kind of local protein that they consume in, in Peru. I have tried it. But that is a local, th- I guess, a regional food staple in, in Peru. Yeah, we we did have a bunch of Andean cheese. They do fried Andean cheese. They do a couple of other interesting dishes that that had, I don't know what makes it Andean cheese, but it certainly tasted wonderful, whether it was fried, whether it was served with other uh, other things. I mean, Peru is known for its food. I think they just have a lot of different influences there. You know, they've got Asian influences. They've got other different regions of, of South America. So I would say that's probably the one big, I guess, lure of, of Lima in particular, I would say Peru itself, you know, obviously there are other great things to see in, the, in that country, whether it be Machu Picchu, Cusco, Sacred Valley, and you know, all those other types of things that are out there. So uh, definitely probably need to make a trip back and, and, and get, out of, uh, get out of the big city, I guess. Uh, oh, there's, the no, trip. there's no question. And I've been seeing Cusco for, you know, $1,100, $1,200 business class. We'll get there. We just didn't want to do that with less than two-year-old with that altitude. Yeah, it is. It, Cusco is definitely up there. You'll definitely feel that. I mean, for those of us who live at sea level, yeah, you'll definitely feel the altitude. Yeah, we just didn't want to risk that. Just like we, we didn't want to risk it with uh, Mexico City. Probably overly cautious, but <laughs> we still made the gamble to, to, to head to Lima. So where did you stay there in, in Lima? Yeah, stayed at the JW Marriott. It was kind of funny. I was wavering between the Westin and the JW. So the JW is in the Miraflores area of Lima and the Westin is just a little bit, I think, inland. I've stayed at the Westin and it's, it's, it's in kind of a really busy business type of area, but I have to admit, I didn't see a lot around there that was really worth you know walking to or going to, I would imagine, versus Miraflores, which is like apparently the place where everybody's supposed to go to when you visit uh, Lima. Yeah, and I could see that. I mean, we were about a three to five minute walk to a mall that was right on the cliff that that had just gorgeous views. We were probably about a 10 minute walk to, I think it was the uh, JFK Park, which was one of the little kind of touristy areas, lots of little restaurants, a nice little playground for kids, a couple of pedestrian streets. And then from there, we just sort of wandered through through some of the other areas. They had a little uh, Indian market that was, you know, essentially, it's easy to think Indian in Peru and you're thinking Indian like the subcontinent. No, this is Indian like the Incas. And so so they had a lot of different handicrafts and, and, and that sort of thing. But yeah, like I said, hard to find that kind of remarkable 
remarkableness. JW Marriott was comfortable. Uh, they had construction going on that hadn't been communicated prior. Pool was closed. That was communicated on the uh, on the website since it was winter. It was a very comfortable winter. I mean, it was shorts and golf shirts all day, all day, every day. We did four nights across three stays. So I get two nights on certs. Friday night was a revenue one because I guess they were they were totally full. And then the last night I just did full points. And the, the front desk was able to stitch everything together. It was completely seamless. Where the, the hotel might have had a little bit of age or, or, or discomfort from the construction, the soft product reminded me a lot of the Rio hotel where they just were so fantastic and, and they remembered you. I mean, we walked into breakfast, you know, three out of those four nights or mornings. And by the second day, they knew who we were by name Hmm. and they knew that we wanted to sit closer to the window and they, you know, they knew we wanted a a child seat. They were just simply fantastic. Seeing a theme here around JWs. Well, at least JWs in South America. I mean, it's been a while since I've been to a JW anywhere. And, and, you know, if this is the brand standard, that's a really great standard to have. That soft product is, if you can get that right, then the hard stuff product is the easy part. I mean, that that just takes money. I imagine it's a lot cheaper to to cultivate the soft product than it is to try to, you know, upgrade the physical plan of a, of a, of a hotel to kind of the level that, that you're expecting from a really five-star kind of place. But it's probably a lot cheaper to cultivate the town, but not easier, right? Cheaper, but not easier. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm looking through our show notes here and I, I feel like the the thing I'm still left with is I just couldn't find that wow. You know, there, there's a lot of those places, you know, I feel like a couple of places in the world are that way. I mean, some people love it. Some people rave about it. You know, I think Lima is one of those places. I feel like maybe Colombia is another one of those places. I haven't been there myself, but I, I have a good friend that tells me that despite the, the the rave reviews people make about Colombia, you know, she found it kind of meh. And you know what? Not every trip is a home run, right? I mean, mm-hmm. we try to experience different things. Did have, uh, <laughs> funny enough, in the lounge, the gentleman in the lounge did. So so just, just like Hyatt, Marriott does Pepsi. And at the JW, they had a, a little secret stash of Coca-Cola. And it was kind of funny. The first day, gentleman in the lounge is like, oh, you got to try this in Coca-Cola. He's like, it tastes like bubble gum. I'm like, it tastes like bubble gum. Okay. He's like, so try this, the Pepsi version, and then I'll be right back. And he, and he, and he comes out with the Coca-Cola version. And I did the taste test between the two and the Coca-Cola version, far superior, far superior. I mean, just a lot more bubbles, just a lot sharper flavor. But I, I definitely have observed in the lounge that there were a few people that they brought out the Coca-Cola for, that sort of thing. And again, that's one of those things where soft product. It takes so little to have a case of Coca-Cola or a case of Inca-Cola in, in the back, but it means so much to some people. Yeah, it's, it's another way to kind of differentiate yourself. And, you know, it really is about making someone feel special. Like they are a valued customer, a VIP. And here's an example of something that doesn't cost a whole lot, but is extremely meaningful. We're talking about it now. And strangely enough, you know, people's preferences on things like soda are actually pretty deep sometimes. They run pretty deep where, you know, I know there's some people who they're, they're either, you know, diehard Coke or diehard Pepsi or one way or the other. They're probably more on the diehard Coke side, I, I have to say. But in any case, there are definitely people that are are, are very are passionate about one or the other. Yeah, absolutely. And, and if I'm going to drink a soda, I'm generally on the Coca-Cola side myself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I mean, you can tell the difference. 
We won't go into it. I know that I, I know you're a Diet Coke fan. I, I imagine you probably I, prefer I, Diet Coke over Diet Pepsi, or the I other prefer way. what's on sale at the at the supermarket. <laughs> that's what that's whatever's on special. That's that's what uh, what I prefer. So I, I'm actually, believe it or not, one of those agnostic. I just do enjoy my diet beverages. Unfortunately, that is my main caffeine delivery system. So that's the way I, I get my bubbles. It's the way I get my caffeine. It's it's what keeps me going through the day. <laughs> Well, I'm sure they're a whole lot cheaper than the bubbles I enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's no vintage diet soda that I'm aware of. Yes, the uh, I, I will have a non-vintage Coca-Cola, please. I think I think the non-vintage the vintage Coca-Cola is what you want, you don't want to drink because <laughs> uh, all that aspartame or whatever has has denatured and it tastes like nothing. So. <laughs> So, so just to round the trip out, two other points I I wanted to share. First was I did reach out ahead of time to coordinate car service and did a little bit of research, realized I was paying a premium and Uber was roughly $20 US and I ended up paying, I think $57, but I was able to confirm Mercedes uh, sedan. Again, this goes to the soft product, right? I said, but I need a car seat. And so they sent me a picture of two car seats that they had available. And I said, okay, the red one is, is the appropriate size. And they had the, the, the red one properly installed. Everything was perfect, which you'll recall was not the case when we were in Bali. And so we ended up paying, like I said, two and a half times, but we, we, we had the comfort and confidence that, that our daughter was comfortably ensconced and safely ensconced in the car seat. Uh, that was the first piece. And then uh, just that flight home, was actually on Delta Metal, but the irony of, of the trip was this was a Latam bird. That <laughs> <laughs> I had completely forgotten. I, I was excited for you to finally fly uh, Delta One, which is not something you, you really do, right? It's, this, is, this was going to be a, almost a first for you, right? Well, and the seat map showed a one-to-one configuration. And then oh, the, morning, oh, did. the oh. morning of, our seats changed. Oh. And I was like, oh, no. Equipment change. Uh-oh. Yeah. Yeah. So we ended up still on an A350, but it was a 222 configuration, not nearly that comfortable. I mean, and it was to the point where no air nozzles. I think my wife's seat had uh, some tape on it because the leather had been damaged or something to that effect. Because these I are mean, pretty new birds. These are not old. I mean, the, I think Delta acquired these from Latam not that long ago, like within the last year or so, I think. Yeah, I looked at it. I think this bird was 2017 to Latam. Cutter had it for like a year or so. And then I think Delta got it in 21 or 22. Yeah, it was September of 21 or 22. The funny part, I keep on going back to soft product. The captain actually came out, welcomed everybody, said, oh, hey, love the the little plane dress that our daughter was wearing. And he's like, yeah, let's go up forward, get a picture in the cockpit. And and it's just that small little thing, and everybody just had a little bit better of a feel for for that seems you know, more common with Delta, you know, where you see the Delta flight crew, you know, just being that much more engaged and that much more customer focused. I mean, that's why I think Delta gets the reputation that they deserve. I think, generally speaking, for for their soft product, right? I assume. I always just knew that operationally they were fantastic until they lost all those people during COVID. Mm-hmm. But I never knew them to be particularly amazing on board. But I also hadn't really stepped on, you know, aboard a Delta flight. I think I've probably taken, I don't know, less than 10 Delta Delta flights in, in the better part of the last 10 years. I'm a Delta million miler, but even myself included, I have I've definitely stayed away from Delta. Again, you know, 
part of it is obviously their loyalty game is pretty weak. And, you know, we already talked about the Sky Pesos a bunch of times. But, you know, as far as their actual product in the air, I generally find the crews, you know, really good, especially compared to United and American, where you, you occasionally get, you know, some pretty lackluster employees that, you know, just don't really seem to be kind of fired up to really do a good job. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And we could go down a rabbit hole on that oh, one. Oh, yeah. That could be a whole episode. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We'll leave that one for a whole a whole other episode, especially with the uh, contract negotiations going on at some airlines. So I stayed in, in one hemisphere. You jumped to the other. That's right. I did. And, and in economy, no less. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I actually am okay with this decision. You know, we flew Virgin Atlantic nonstop from Dulles to London. This is actually a flight that I've done now several times, and it's such a short flight. It's like six hours. So, you know, I, honestly, if I'm paying for business class, I kind of want to go a little further than that. I mean, it's that's where I just feel like it's such a waste. I mean, by the time you, you're done with your meal and maybe you've watched a movie, you get like, what, one hour of sleep? And then it's time for, <laughs> to serve you breakfast <laughs> and time to land. That, that's kind of what's standard, I think, especially going toward Europe from America. Got that jet stream cutting, you know, cutting down the flight time two hours. So if I were going to fly business class, I'd probably, you know, maybe spring for the the other direction. But we didn't do that either. We we ended up doing uh, Virgin Atlantic nonstop both directions. And actually, the, the flight back was excellent. We had everybody had pretty much uh, poor man's first class. We were, we were flying back on the Sunday after Labor Day, the following weekend. And the plane was about a third empty. So, you know, I, I was able to get an empty seat next to me or I was in a row of four with, uh, you know, only two people in it at either aisle. And my mom and dad had a row to themselves. So, you know, we, we were able to kind of spread out and, and had a really decent flight, even though it was longer on the way back, eight hours. Yeah. I mean, that sounds comfortable. I, I, I keep on thinking to myself that these long economy flights can't be that bad. Just thinking back to episode one, when we did that, the, the, the round trip, five hour flights from Tokyo down to Manila. The, the problem I run into is, is I'm fairly certain no, no other airline is going to, is going to be as good in economy as, as Japan Airlines was. Oh my God. They, they were so, they were so amazing. That was one of the most memorable economy flights, or I guess pair of economy flights that, that I can think of. And this Virgin one was pretty good. I mean, the Virgin crew are pretty good, you know, and I wouldn't say they're going to win any awards on coach food, but, you know, it was, it was reasonably good. And, you know, they, they had some snacks in the galley if you wanted to get some. And, you know, you can't beat the price. I mean, I, I ended up doing 10,000 Virgin Atlantic miles for nonstop Dulles to uh, London. That's an amazing deal. Now, mind you, you are paying some high taxes, whether it be, I think, between 150 and 250, I guess, depending on which direction for YQ and, you know, the, basically the fuel surcharges and taxes for the UK, et cetera. So there's some cash to that too, but 10,000 miles. I mean, come on to go nonstop Dulles, London with, I think they have availability a lot of time too. I mean, we were flying on literally the, what is it? The Friday before Labor Day. Mind you, we did book it well in advance, but that worked out. Yeah. Virgin is definitely one of those airlines where if you're light on miles, but you got a little bit of extra cash to throw around, it's pretty good value. Even the business class I think is, uh, is not that many miles compared to United or or some of the other airlines, it is just that the sting of the uh, of the YQ, uh, the fuel surcharges. And our, the plane that we ended up flying was a three thirty, which had that awful herringbone, which I've flown before. And you know, it, it's not in and of itself awful, but it's just very uncompetitive from both a space storage and you know comfort perspective. That's the other thing. A little tease for the next episode. I think we're flying on that same bird. Oh, are, 
Are you you're fly, you're gonna fly the A three thirty? I I think so. It's that late. It's that late late arriving bird. Ah, uh, yes, that, that's what one I was on, and I think they just made a schedule change to that. That didn't used to arrive that late. They've made a change for that. Yeah, like a ten thirty arrival. That's ungodly. It is ungodly, and and because it's so late, you know, we we got the lovely moon buggies. You know, we got the mobile lounges at Dulles, so we didn't get to customs until what a good twenty thirty minutes after uh, landing. So factor that in a little bit. So, you know, you, it could be as late as 11, 11.30 before you're out of the airport. Yeah, oh, that's, that's, that's going to be, that, uh, that, that, that's going to be rough. So you got to London, you seemed like you had a, a little bit of a, a good flight or a better than expected flight for that uh, five, six hour flight. You were there for a cruise, but you got there a day early. I did. So we were able to, we, we got there the morning of, we um, stayed with uh, some friends of mine who are also joining us on the cruise. We stayed at a hotel in, in Central London. Location was excellent. It was called the St. Giles Hotel. I'm not sure that I would recommend it. It is the location is wonderful, but the rooms were eh, a little a, a little bit lower than than what I personally would enjoy. But you know what? It was it was we slept. We had good uh, accommodation, and we were able to check out. We weren't th- we weren't there very long, and we were outside of our room quite a bit. Too. Was that a points hotel or was that cash? Uh, it was cash. I think it ended up being about 200 pounds for the room, which is, you know, it's for what we got. I, you know, I don't know if, I think the problem was obviously it was Labor Day weekend, you know, it was summertime in London, you know, so didn't have a lot of options, I think. So I think there, there are other good points options, but I wanted to stay where the, the rest of the group was staying because we did actually end up chartering, you know, a little van to take about eight of us uh, down to Southampton. And, uh, you know, we were able to, you know, do a quick side trip to Stonehenge as well on the way down. Although I'll be honest, I'm, I was a little underwhelmed by Stonehenge. You know, it's, it's great to see it. It's, it is, it is very impressive, but you don't really get that close. I mean, you don't, you're good 20, 30 yards, I guess, away at all times, you, you know, this big circle that you're walking around with like hundreds of other tourists. So. I guess they're concerned that tourists, if they could get too close, they'd climb on top or otherwise oh, yeah. topple them. Oh, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I get why it's that way. It's just, it's something about not being able to get close, you know, that, that kind of t- detracts a bit from the experience. A little underwhelming. Yes, yes, yes. It'd almost be better if they could find some way to get closer and just like put up some barriers or something so that at least like the part where you get a little closer, maybe you can't get so close you can climb it. But, you know, I don't know. They, they got to figure that out, I think, one day. But the London trip also, you know, we had a good, uh, we had some good food experiences, went to Borough Market. I don't know. Have you, have you been to Borough Market in London? I don't think so. I don't think so. I, much of my experience has usually been in Marlebone or Mayfair or Knightsbridge. Mm-hmm. This is kind of in that London Bridge area. At least that's the uh, closest tube station. Oh, and, okay. you know, It's just a great little, you know, food food hall market, you know, where they have, you know, obviously they've got fresh fruits and and other kind of butchers and fishmongers and all those type of people and they've got a stall that's known for their toasted cheese otherwise known as grilled cheese for us Americans that is amazing they have a place that does amazing sausage rolls and pastries and had a great had a great time there we also went to a place in Covent Garden called Dishum which is a very well known Indian place you know actually it's, it's interesting right after I ate there I saw the the Point Sky UK had just covered it as well on one of their videos but that was a great meal that that was arranged by uh, some friends of mine, and they had made the reservations. And it was, it was amazing to get there and just see literally a line out the door for a block, and we just kind of walked in with our reservation, which was amazing. Oh, you can't beat that! I'm I'm putting both of those on my list next time I get into London. Absolutely, good recommendations for everybody listening. You know, both good places. 
But yeah, we were actually there for a cruise. So we, we, we left from Southampton. We did our Stonehenge trip. We did the little minibus. We got on board, you know, pretty much everything you expect. It was on Anthem of the Seas, which is another Royal Caribbean quantum class ship. Very nice place to do cruise. Fairly modern. I think it's it's probably, I don't know, half a decade old or maybe a little more than that. Maybe seven years, something like that. It's not showing its age. I mean, it's it's very well kept, very modern. Everything felt pretty new and fresh. Well, you can't beat that. And, and that ship clearly gets around. Uh, Quantum class, as I recall, is is kind of a colder weather built ship, right? A lot of in, interior spaces, uh, much smaller than the, than the Oasis class ships, such as the Wonder of the Seas that we talked about on a previous episode. Yeah, that, that, the Quantum class is kind of, uh, is definitely a step smaller than the Oasis class. It's still, we still had about if I remember correctly, about 4,500 guests on board. So still pretty big, but yes, it definitely has more an enclosed pool and, and, and some other things that you don't have on Oasis. More of the activities and other things are, are kind of enclosed, including like a sports deck, you know, where that would have been outside on an Oasis ship. It's enclosed on this ship and has the ability to do bumper cars. So that's one thing that, that they have that uh, Oasis doesn't. They also have iFly, you know, they have one of those, the skydiving simulator type things. So that's another thing you can do. They also have like a North Star, which is the observation deck thing that's on an arm that basically raises up a couple hundred feet above uh, the top floor of the top deck, which, you know, really puts, gets you really up there. I forget what the exact height is, but it's, it's several hundred feet above the sea level. And when they're at port, you know, though you can you can get a reserve spot. It's it's no cost extra. You can just reserve a space and and, and basically get a, a really nice view uh, from up above of the port area. Not for those with uh with a fear of heights, I'd imagine. Absolutely not. Those with vertigo or other other afraid of heights type of thing. Yeah, not for you. But you know, in general, a, a great ship. It was a great cruise. The food was definitely above average. You know, I don't know if it was something about. A, the clientele being British, so I think they're, they're they're catering a little bit more to the majority of of the staff there that were or the passengers there that were the punters, as as one would say in, in England, who are mostly from the uh, the UK. But yeah, generally speaking, we overall impression was the the food, both the main dining room and the buffet, were just a step better than most Royal Caribbean ships. So uh, I, I have to ask, just because I feel like in the in the cruise discussion circuits. Everybody always asks about the lobster. Oh, is there lobster? Yes. What a great question. What a great, no, actually <laughs> the answer was no, there was no lobster, uh, which was actually quite a disappointment. So this is this is typical, you know, of a real seven night cruise. One of the nights is like a formal dress night and they'll they'll serve they'll usually have lobster tail on the menu and nope, not on this one. They had we had jumbo grilled shrimp. That's what we had. Oh, that's such a shame. Yeah. So even though I we rated the food high, yeah, that was one of the disappointing things. They, for whatever reason, they said, well, in Europe, we don't do that. I'm like, I've been on a Europe cruise where they have lobster, so I don't know. So something tells me they're making some excuses. And, and I saw reports even on the, not quote unquote domestic, but like out of the US, that there was a pullback in lobster as well. Yeah. I don't know what's going on. Maybe, I don't know if there's like some sort of lobster shortage or something, or the, the price has spiked on lobster or I don't know what's going on, but. It's a stealth devaluation. There, it's just Royal does it differently. <laughs> Between the housekeeping and some of the other stuff we talk about on the, on, on the miles and points side, Hey, you know, something costs more. Whereas on Royal Caribbean, for example, you just get less. It's sort of like, you know, in the supermarket, the price didn't change for that mayonnaise, but it used to be 16 ounces and now it's 15. Yep. 
they definitely did cut back on that. But, you know, strangely enough, other things they didn't. I'll give example, you know, on the buffet, you know, there was one time where I saw cheese is a good indicator because usually it's this, you know, this commodity cheese that you have. On this one, they had a number of different cheeses, including, you know, some really relatively expensive ones. Like they had an actual gigantic wheel of Parmigiano Reggiano, which is not something that I typically see on a Royal Caribbean boat. They're usually using the cheap stuff. Maybe not the ones in the the green plastic can, but, you know, they're not usually using the actual stuff from from Italy. Let's jump to the the ports. So I had done a, a Norwegian cruise last year, and there's only two overlap between what I had done and, and, and what you did. So interesting. So let's jump to the stops that you made. Absolutely. Well, Stavanger is probably one of those overlap, if I'm not mistaken. It was, and it was one of my favorite stops. So I'm really anxious to hear what you think about it. Oh, I liked it. It was it was a great city to walk around. It's actually, I think, like the third biggest city in, in Norway and has some great museums. So we went to the, I went to that petroleum museum, I think that you had recommended, which other people have recommended as well. Definitely worth the visit. Also went to some other museums. And one of the things I think is you go to one of the other museums and pretty much all the other museums are included in that one entrance fee. So I went to the printing museum, which is attached to the canning museum, which are two very interesting kinds of museums to to visit. That's kind of in that old town area of, of Stavanger where all these white houses from, from like the 18th, 19th century. That was definitely worth a visit. I only spent maybe 45 minutes there, but you know, it was still interesting. And then that included admittance to the Stavanger Museum and the Art Museum and the Maritime Museum. Didn't make it to all of them, but I did make it to the Maritime Museum, which is also interesting. You know, again, spent about half an hour there. So oh, I missed out on that Maritime Museum. I'll have to, I'll have to put that on the list if I ever make it back there. Yeah, if you ever make it back, yeah, definitely check it out. Yeah, so I think Stavanger, very nice place to visit. You know, I didn't I didn't buy any excursions, didn't need a tour. It's very much just self-guided walking around. It was definitely worth getting off the boat and, and taking a look around. Awesome. So so I think your next one was the uh was the second overlap. Was it Olden? Olden, yeah. So Olden, I think the main thing that that it's known for is the Brickstall Glacier. And I don't know if you were you able to take a a, a excursion up to that glacier? No, we we did not do an excursion on that one, unfortunately. I'm trying to think, is Olden the one where it's really just a, a very rural, you know, agrarian town yes. and they had only like one little pub. And if you walked a little bit further, you saw like alpacas or llamas or whatever the, I, I, the appropriate think, yes. furry <laughs> creature up there is. Yeah, I think they had plenty of sheeps and alpacas and, and various things. It is a beautiful place. And again, the, the glacier was very interesting. It reminds me a lot of like going to, let's say, the Mendenhall Glacier in Juneau and like kind of that kind of environment. Different shape, you know, much more vertical. And I will say the hike up there, I was definitely hoofing it, you know, for the first because it's a good where the buses drop you off. It's it's a good hour hike to the main to the main viewpoint for the glacier. And it's all uphill or not all, it's at least half uphill with some flat parts, but you're gaining a lot of altitude to get up to this glacier. So it's, it's definitely not a low intensity hike. Jeez, between Victoria Falls and Norway, you, this is the summer that you hiked your, uh, you hiked quite a bit. Well, and the funny thing is all of these are kind of unanticipated. You know, the funny thing is I knew that I did not want to do this hike. I had actually reserved one of these, what they call troll cars. It's basically one of these like little John Deere ATV kind of things where it can carry a couple passengers. So, and I, I did attend this with my my parents and somewhat older senior citizen type people. So, I was going to consider myself into that you know group that was going to take that motorized vehicle up up the mountain. 
But unfortunately, one of my friends who joined me had a bit of a mishap and were hobbled a bit. In fact, had an Achilles, I think, injury, very similar to one I had in the past. So I felt extremely bad for them because, you know, I, I've obviously been through that situation before. And I was like, you are not able to go up this mountain in your condition. You need to take my spot on this uh, troll car. And, and I decided to hike up instead, which was absolutely the right decision. I did make it. I didn't die. There was no medical emergencies, no need to invoke my my travel insurance. But I was very tired getting up the mountain. And But it was obviously a, a great treat to to finally see the glacier once you got out there. That's awesome. And definitely bravo for doing the right thing. So, so I don't even know how to pronounce this next to uh, th- this next stop. I had. probably spelled it wrong. It's it's Granger uh, or Granger or, or I, I I don't know. It's another small kind of rural stop in a fjord, but it's beautiful. You know, I'm sorry you didn't have it on your itinerary because there are some pretty unique things about this. The town itself, not a whole lot there. There is a waterfall trail that that really only takes like I was able to do it in about an hour. Again, you add some verticality, you have to go up probably a couple hundred stairs uh, to get to the top of this waterfall trail. When you do it, your your reward is a very lovely viewpoint to both see the, the waterfall and your ship docked in the distance, along with, you know, the kind of cliffs of the fjord. So it's a very, very photogenic viewing spot. So I was able to do that. But the the, the kind of the highlight of, of Garanger is there is a spot in the fjord where there's a group of waterfalls called the Seven Sisters. And these are all small little, you know, waterfalls, you know, cascading over this immensely tall cliff as you're sailing through the fjord. And what the, the ship captain did after our, I guess, about 2.30 departure is he went to the spot and did a 360. Oh, so you that could basically, sounds... So you could basically see people on their, you know, balconies. We, we were interior cabin people, but we, uh, you know, marked our space on the, uh, the top deck and enjoyed this. Uh, took many, many photos and enjoyed the, the marvel of, of the Norwegian fjords. Oh, that sounds incredible. Not just the waterfalls, but also a ship that size doing that kind of a maneuver is also kind of a, a cool thing to see as well. It is. It's just, it was, I'm surprised the ship had enough space to do this 360, but they were able to do it. And, you know, these ships now have these like azipods, right? You know, that allow them to be much more maneuverable than maybe even ships that are half their size in some cases. Yeah. And those fjords, they go just down. I mean, we were looking at the depths when we were sailing and my gosh, I mean, you know, hundreds and hundreds of feet deep. And literally you could like almost drive a a golf ball off the fantail and and hit one of the mountains. (laughs) So the last port, again, not super amazing, you know, Hagesund. It's another, I forget what size city it is compared to the rest of Norway, but you know, it just seemed a nice coastal town. It's relatively large. I mean, that's, I'd say it's probably some fraction of, of Stavanger, but definitely much much larger than Olden or, or Geranger. But I think their claim to fame is, I think, the the family of Marilyn Monroe is from Hagesund. And uh, it used to be home to lots of like shipping and, and, and herring fishers and things like that. But we did a little uh, bus tour around, taking a look at stuff that took about, you know, 90 minutes or so. And that was about enough to get a good flavor of, of the town. And, you know, that that's about all there was to Hagesund. Well, and sometimes that's what you want. I mean, it sounds to me like you got kind of the bigger city. I say bigger in, in, in air quotes here with Stefanger. <laughs> and then you got two really small little rural experiences and then kind of, you know, a mid- an in-between. And in-between, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Hagesund sounds like Ullison. A little bit different claim to fame, but still very similar. 
but it was nice. They had a nice place, you know, for restaurants and, you know, for a nicely kind of riverside area just to take, you know, take in the, the, the sun and the good weather, which we had. We had wonderfully good weather on this whole cruise. And strangely enough, here in the, uh, the first week of, of September, I, I brought a raincoat, a vest and a hoodie. All three of them were pretty much completely useless. Sometimes it's nice to overpack like that. Yep. So any final thoughts on the, on, on the anthem of the seas going to Norway? You know, the only other interesting thing is we, we actually stayed on board that cruise after most people had left. There was an option, which is the first time I've ever seen it on a Royal Caribbean ship, to pay extra to stay on board the ship beyond the normal disembarkation time, which is for those of you who haven't cruised before, you know, don't get any illusions. When they want you to disembark, you have to get off of that ship by 8.30, 9 o'clock. They are wanting you out of there, out of your room, so they can clean the whole thing and turn it back around. You know, There's no 4 p.m. checkout, generally. No globalist late checkout there. No globalist late checkout. However, they would let you pay a little bit of money, in this case, to stay on board into the public areas. We, couldn't, we had to leave our rooms by 8.30 a.m., but we could lounge around in the solarium and the public pool and uh, or find a lounge or a place to kind of camp out for a couple hours, which is what we did. Again, because we we're on that Virgin Atlantic flight that, that left London at 7 p.m. So it's excessive amount of time to be at Heathrow if we want to just go straight to the, the airport. I thought it'd be nicer just to kind of like hang out on the boat when it was empty, which it was for a couple hours. Because, you know, most of the people were off the boat by about 9 o'clock and the new people didn't hop on until about 11. So it was a good about two hours where the place was pretty much deserted. I took that opportunity to go take a dip in the pool, which I hadn't done that whole seven days. And uh, that was a nice way to spend some time. And then we ended up uh, having some some food on the buffet for lunch, and then we left. So so you were flying um, economy out. Obviously, you still had a, a fair amount of time at, at Heathrow. I think that's T2, if I recall, right? At Terminal 3. Terminal 3, T3. I just have to ask, did you get into any lounges? We did. And uh, mistake made, there is an Amex Centurion lounge there. I forgot to bring my parents' Amex cards. I probably could have found some way to get them in, but I just, you know what, they were looking okay in the, the priority. We, we stayed in the Aspire Lounge, which is the prior, priority pass lounge. I did hike over to the, the American Express Lounge, mainly because the Aspire Lounge did not have any ice. So I did need to go ahead and get some ice for my beverages. And so I, I made a quick trip over to the Amex Lounge, had had some chicken thighs and some other food there and, and got, got filled up my cup of ice, which is a much superior lounge to the Aspire Lounge, by the way. So definitely much nicer at the, the Amex Centurion. But remember to have your, your platinum cards ready for all your guests, unless you want to pay extra. I'm going to have to make sure I put that one of those platinums in my wife's wallet just because we're going to be flying through there in, uh, in about 10 days. Yep, yep. Don't forget. Don't 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 make my mistake. <laughs> but, you know, we were fine. You know, we only had about two hours of lounge time in total in Heathrow rather than the, the multiple hours had we, you know, gone and left at the regular disembarkation time. And Heathrow is a zoo. It's kind of in probably the, the range of a JFK Seattle in terms of like not a lot of space with a lot of, a lot of flights leaving. It kind of reminded me of the old Sydney term, uh, international terminal before that big expansion. I mean, we're going back to 2010. Yeah. I don't remember what the, the, the old uh, Sydney terminal was like, but it, it's busy. It's busy. So I would say, you know, being able to have some some access to lounges is, is not a horrible thing. And they do that that horrible thing of not letting you know what gate you're at until, you know, like what, five or ten minutes before boarding starts. Because they want you to sit around and, and shop and eat, you know, in, in the, uh, the, con- the airport concessions. Can't beat that. It sounds like you had a pretty great uh, Norwegian uh, excursion. You want to close it out with the guest affair? Sure. Why not? Hit me. <laughs> okay. So we talk a lot about different fairs and, and sort of trying to nest itineraries. 
I think previously we've talked about kind of nesting itineraries in, in Brazil, coming back to the U.S., that sort of thing. What I find that I've been starting to see a lot of, and, and we see a lot of them from time to time, is from Europe coming back. Usually they're uh, one world fairs. I found a Sky Team fair from Madrid to Los Angeles. The dates are, I'm looking here, I think it's February 6th to the 20th. So we're in wintertime, but obviously if you're going from Madrid, Madrid's not too wintry compared to Paris or, or London. And it is in business class. Is this Air France KLM or is this ITA? Who is this? This is Air France okay. and it looks to be connecting in CDG. Okay. So it's, it's uh, and this is round trip fair starting in Madrid, Madrid, Charles de Gaulle, LA? On the way out, the way back is a nonstop on Delta Metal. Oh. Interesting. My guess the fare on this will be $2,068. Actually, that's not that bad. And the funny part is, is I've been seeing a lot in that $2,100 range. This one came in at $1,840. Oh, that's, that's actually a pretty good deal. Yeah. I mean, it's not as great a deal as we've seen in the past, but I mean, you've got that extra long flight going from De Gaulle to, to LA and LA direct into Madrid. I, I, I think I'd almost pay a premium to have that nonstop. So Delta flies nonstop LA to Madrid? Apparently so. I haven't I haven't dug deep into uh, uh, flight numbers and that sort of thing. Wow, what a weird what a weird route for Delta. I don't know, really. Like like why why would you say that? Well, Madrid isn't a. I don't think it's a Sky Team hub, is it? Unless I mean, I guess there's Air Europa. No, but I mean, you they're, know, not a, they're not a JV partner. But but it's a major city in Europe. That's true. I could see that much more than like Berlin, for example. Yeah, but that would that seemed to be more like a, a seasonal, maybe summer type of, of, of location rather than a, you know, because, you know, they usually cut back the routes during the, the wintertime. But anyway. Well, that's true. No, no, no. You're right. You're right. The fare, though, is is excellent, especially West Coast to Europe for $1,800-ish. Not bad. Yeah. And, and, and funny observation, not to circle back to the Lima trip, our aircraft came from Barcelona. So it flew Barcelona to Atlanta. Atlanta to Lima, Lima back to, to Atlanta. I mean, I guess that's a way for them to maximize utilization because, I mean, effectively, it's effectively two day flights. Yeah. Well, or, I mean, or a red eye and then a day flight. You know, it's better than Virgin who lets their A330 sit at Dulles for, you know, 18 hours based on their. <laughs> that's a pretty poor utilization. <laughs> is it really that long? My gosh. It really is. <laughs> It's crazy. My my guess is maybe they just don't like it's the schedule changes for the winter. Maybe they it's cheaper to park it at Dulles for eighteen hours and leave it at, at Heathrow. Yeah, that could be the case. I think there's a lot of uncertainty on how on how load factors are going to be in the fall. So it'll be interesting to fly. And I, I know that the flights that we've got in a couple of weeks on Virgin are about half full. The crazy part though is is that we've got May flights to return and they're empty. Like every seat was open in in, in the forward cabin upper class. Yeah. That doesn't surprise me. I mean, Virgin seems to be as European transatlantic carriers go, they definitely seem to be one of the ones that, that doesn't have particularly high low factor, you know? Yeah. And they, well, they also have just kind of a weird network. They do that or, or really not much of one. Yeah. Well, shall we close it out? Yep. It seems like an episode to me. Well, that's the show. Thanks for joining us. And we hope you enjoyed listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, consider becoming a Milonomics Patreon member and get access to even more in-depth miles, points, and travel content. Until then, we hope your next story is a travel story. <laughs>